0: Nearly everything we understood about global warming was understood in 1979. By that year, data collected since 1957 confirmed that what had been known since before the turn of the 20th century. Human beings have altered Earth's atmosphere through the indiscriminate burning of fossil fuels. The main scientific questions were settled beyond debate, and as the 1980s began, attention turned from the diagnosis of the problem To refinement of the predicted consequences compared with string theory and genetic engineering the greenhouse effect a metaphor dating to the early 1900s was ancient history described in any introduction to biology textbook nor was the basic science especially complicated it could be reduced to a simple axiom the more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere the warmer the planet And every year, by burning coal, oil, and gas, humankind belched increasingly obscene quantities of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Over the next decade, a handful of scientists, politicians, and strategists, led by two unlikely heroes, risked their careers in a desperate, escalating campaign to convince the world to act before it was too late. Losing Earth is their story, and ours. So why didn't we act? Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, August 5th, 2019. And a year ago yesterday, the New York Times Magazine devoted an entire issue to Nathaniel Rich's groundbreaking chronicle of that decade, 1979-89, to which became an instant journalistic phenomenon, the subject of news coverage, editorials, and conversations all over the world. In its emphasis on the lives of the people who grappled with the great existential threat of our age, it made vivid the moral dimension of our shared plight. Now expanded into a book form, Losing Earth tells the story of climate change in even richer, more intimate terms. It reveals in previous unreported details the birth of climate denialism and the genesis of the fossil fuel industry's coordinated effort to thwart climate change policy through misinformation, propaganda, and political influence. The book carries the story into the present day wrestling with the long shadow of our past failures and asking crucial questions about how we make sense of our past, our future, and ourselves. Like John Hershey's Hiroshima and Jonathan Schell's The Fate of Earth, losing Earth is the rarest of achievements, a riveting work of dramatic history that articulates a moral framework for understanding how we got here and how we must go forward. And today for 42 Minutes we'll go forward with the author Nathaniel Rich, Author of three novels, King Zeno, Odds Against Tomorrow, and The Mayor's Tongue, Rich's short fiction has been published in McSweeney's Vice, The Virginia Quarterly Review, and The American Scholar. Rich served as the fiction editor of the Paris Review between 2005 and 10, and is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine. His essays on literature appear regularly in the Atlantic Harpers and the New York Review of Books. In 2005, he published a work of film criticism, San Francisco Noir, which Martin Scorsese called a fascinating work of criticism disguised as a guided tour of a great city. More information about Nathaniel and his work can be found at his website, Nathanielrich.com. It truly is an honor to be welcoming Nathaniel to the program this morning. How are you doing today, Nathaniel?
1: I'm doing well. Good good to talk with you. Thanks for having me on. You bet.
0: So let's start with bad guys. When I first started into your piece a year ago, I was really hoping for someone to blame. Um, what prompted you to go down this path in the first place?
1: Well, it was, um, I, it was a remarkable opportunity that was given to me. Um, I was asked by my editors uh, if I was interested in writing an entire issue-length article about climate change. It was part of a a partnership that the New York Times magazine had with the Pulitzer Center a a nonprofit journalistic uh, foundation and I felt it was it was an enormous responsibility and that that if I were to do something like this I better uh, take on the subject in a new way and 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 write about climate change in a way that it hadn't been written about before and 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 I felt very, you know, right away there was, there was an important way to do that, which was to write um, a narrative about the form. I think, that you know, most of the writing on the subject tends to be um, journalistic, uh, you know, discussing the worst-case scenarios, you know, perhaps some of the more optimistic scenarios, explaining the science, um, explaining, you know, all the climate tragedies that are already occurring, explaining the politics. And I felt that all of that had been done, you know, well enough uh, in the past and was, was, was available to any interested reader. What, what I felt had not been written about uh, was the core of the matter, I, I think, which is the human dimension of the issue. So, you know, how is this great uh, disaster uh, affecting our own lives, our personal lives, our, our you know, dreams for the future the way we see our democracy, the way we see ourselves, and I felt that some of these larger questions hadn't really been posed in the literature, uh, or at least hadn't been posed at any great depth. And and so I felt the way of of doing that was was through a narrative, um, a dramatic narrative, a historical narrative, and and I came across this period, a decade from 1979 to 1989, has largely been forgotten. Um, and it's a significant uh, period because by 1979, the science, as you said, was fully established. Um, the fundamental science of climate change really hasn't evolved since 1979. We have more data. Um, the predictions are more precise, but the big picture hasn't changed at all. And you had during that period the first efforts to turn uh, from science into policy and it's actually, although it's a tragic story, you know, the the it's actually there's a, there's a number of triumphs during this 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 decade where a small group of people figure out what they think is a viable solution. Ultimately, after a number of you know problems and conflicts along the way, they they get to the precipice of a global agreement to reduce carbon emissions, and at the very last second, of course, the U.S. pulls out of that. Process, or at least out of that, you know, the idea of a binding uh, treaty to reduce emissions, and everything unravels, and it's just at that moment that the oil and gas industry starts to, it starts its its multi-decadal now, uh, you know, propaganda, disinformation campaign, and and um, you know, campaign of buying off politicians and and all the rest. Um, and so I, I thought that it was important to write about this period. Not only because it was instructive historically um, for, the, for the present and because people had forgotten about it, but I also wanted to write about the individuals who were first grappling with the problem not only on a political level but on a personal level and I felt that was a way into a deeper dimension of of the story than, than had been um, than, than, than we'd had seen before
0: well so what I, what makes your piece fun is that that human dimension, like you're talking about, it would be it would make a great movie. It's just the problem with that is that it's a tragedy, and we don't really know just how bad the tragedy will become. Uh, I wonder about you know the reception, like a year later, you know, looking back on this, you know, what what are your thoughts and feelings about how. you know, the impact the piece has made this past year?
1: Well, I mean, the impact immediately was staggering. I, um, (laughs) by the end of the process, I mean, the the original article was published at 30,000 words. You know, the book is a bit longer, uh, but I I didn't expect um, a historical piece about a subject that, you know, uh, scientific... Uh, you know, is it at least perceived as sort of scientific in nature. Um, you know, the action of the piece is not—it's not like there are gunfights or car chases. There's, um, you know, it's basically a lot of meetings and and people trying to solve problems uh, in in offices. Uh, and yet, uh, the response immediately was was this international, uh, you know, sort of a staggering thing for me. Um, and it really took over my life and and. You know, mostly good ways, and and I realized right right away that it uh, you know had had obviously struck struck a nerve, because I think it allowed people to see the problem in different terms, and I, and it, it it reaffirmed for me my sense that there was a, a deep desire out there in the world among think, thinking people to grapple with not only you know what should we do next, what politicians and policies should we vote for. You know who, how should we punish the villains and all of that, but a real desire to 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 grapple with some of the larger questions raised by by this crisis, some of which are more sort of philosophical, personal, emotional, um, and so I realized right away that that I ha- I felt I felt some obligation to expand on some of those ideas in 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 a book, uh, and so that that was the sort of one of the main things that I did in the book uh, was I included the longer afterward trying to, um, you know, if not resolve, then ask in a bit, you know, more, more explicit uh, language, you know, what are we to make of this failure? Um, I don't think the book is itself, you know, certainly it's a tra- the form of the, the narrative is a tragedy, um, but it's also a book that people, have re- readers have responded, you know, in very different ways to. Some readers have said, "This is yes, this is depressing, I can't deal with this. Other readers have found it galvanizing and, and and used it as a spur to greater action or greater thought. And I think that's healthy. I think if for the book to succeed, I feel like it 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 has to be something that can be used you know by by readers for all kinds of different purposes. If it was a simply you know i, I would I would contrast that against what I think of as activist. You know, writing, which attempts to make readers um, reach a single outcome and 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 you know take a single action, usually political. I think with a work of literature, it should hopefully, if it works, it allows readers to take to take it and ask some deeper questions of themselves and and questions that don't have clear answers necessarily. And so that's all been very gratifying for me. And and uh, yeah, it's been a year you know it took 2 years to write and it's been another year of um of of it being very you know prominently in my life and i think that's that's been very exciting for me and um and i'm curious yes i'm certainly curious to see what where it goes from from here but it's all you can hope for as a a writer is to have people engage with your work in a serious way and so that that part of it has been gratifying
0: Galvanizing is a good word because I do feel like... So I've read climate writing, you know, at least for a decade, but probably longer. And it really seems like this year has become... Uh, I I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there just feels like there's more momentum or it it people... It, it's a sad tale because, you know, as you relate early on, there was so much progress. And then it seemed like that all that history was erased. And then we've just gone backwards. And so, yeah. But but this last year, really, you know, there's been some great writing. And, and so, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, how hopeful you are, maybe.
1: Well, it's reminiscent of what happened in 1988 after James Hansen's uh, testimony, uh, which is sort of a at the climax of the, of the, of the action that I write about in 1988, um, before Congress, when he says, you know, global warming is here now. It's not a, it's not a theory anymore. We're already feeling the effects. It was, you know, in the middle of a record, hot, um, hot summer. Um, and you had this huge explosion of public interest in, in the issue. And you had even, you know, President George H.W. Bush starts campaigning on the issue saying he's going to fix, Global warming. You have 32 major bills proposed in Congress uh, that year. Some of which are more, you know, were more ambitious than even what the Green New Deal um, hopes to accomplish. And so there, there is a there is a a parallel there. Of course, within a couple of years, um, interest declined for a number of of reasons. But right now, what's what's different now is there's there's a new kind of um, a new, a new, new activism that really hadn't happened when I had written the original article, but I was able to write about it for the book, um, because it's only begun in the last year, and it's it's you know youth-led activism, and for the first time in this in this history, there's a new argument in favor of action, and I think it's a it's it's a more profound one and perhaps a more effective one. Um, until now, the argument, which was first articulated by people like Rafe Pomerance in 1979, 1980, was effectively, you know, we know, the si- we know what's happening, we have the science, we know what we need to do, you know, lower carbon emissions, uh, and we know we better act fast if we're to avoid some of these worst-case scenarios. Um, that argument I call in the book uh, an appeal to reason, right? It's simply saying, you know, we better act. It's stupid not to act. And that's the argument that we've heard basically ever since. It's the same argument is reflected in Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore. Um, it's still the kind of argument you hear from the kind of old guard Democrats running for for president. Um, you know, we need its common sense to act. What the new generation has, has said, I think they've absorbed the failure of that argument to really, um, that, you know, they understand that, that that argument can only go so far politically uh, in our system. And they're no longer interested in that argument. Of course, they agree with it, that it's logical to act. But their appeal is, is much more uh, emotional and personal. They say things like, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Greta Thunberg, the Swedish um, teenagers, say things like, uh, "Your inaction is killing us. Um, you know, we're afraid to have children. Um, we, you know, we refuse to accept this. Um, this is a crime against humanity uh they're making a moral claim that says essentially that inaction uh neglecting this problem is uh, a form of deep injustice that that forces us to question or it's a betrayal of the very basic uh, values that we claim as the, the, the basis for our democracy of our civilization that it's it's vi- it's a violent act to allow this to go on because we know the amount of human suffering that this is already created and will create you know exponentially in the future and they recognize it as a form of of great social injustice um, you know there's an understanding that climate change uh doesn't affect everyone evenly but it hurts you know it oppresses those who are most oppressed um, victimizes those who are most victimized and so they're using a different language and they're not really worried about you know they're not talking about the science so much they're talking about human suffering and social justice and i think that's a profound shift and i think it's already had a profound effect so you asked if it, on the politics around this um you asked if if i was hopeful i mean i i that you know if i'm to find hope anywhere in this it's in that in this in the shift of the argument because i think until we're able to talk uh, about this problem honestly which which the these activists are doing. Um, I don't think we have a chance at, at real change. So, you know, I'm a writer. I have faith in language and, and the power of language. And I think uh, finally that that change is happening, and it's happening a lot sooner than I expected. Um, but it but it's happening now, and we'll see how far you know we'll see how far it gets us.
0: In your review of the Overstory, you do you kind of ask the question, why did Richard Powers decide to go down this route. But you also uh, noted that that was addressed in, in the text by one of the people, and it has to do with the role of a story to change people's minds. Um, the other interesting thing about this moment too is that it's such a big problem. There isn't like one solution. It has to be all the solutions, I think, might be where we're headed, but you know, what you 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 talk about story and and the power of words you know do you think we could make your your uh journalistic narrative into a film a sexy film with Pomerantz and hansen trying to save the world
1: <laughs> well there i mean the i mean i can say cuz it was published you know it it has been you know bought by apple um and so that's what they're trying To do so, yes, I think it's possible. (laughs) Um, We'll we'll see if it'll be effective or not. I mean, an effective. When I say effective, I don't mean effective as a as a you know propaganda. I mean effective as a work of art uh, of storytelling. Um, I think that's that's where I felt you know the Overstory, Richard Powers' novel. I I have tremendous respect for Powers. I think he's one of our great the great novelists of our time, and he's one of the very few who's willing to take on major you know social issues uh, and intellectual issues in his in his uh, fiction I felt that where overstory failed was that unlike most of his other novels um, you know he takes a complex issue and with climate change basically and simplifies it down to you know good guys and bad guys and I and I feel like you know as I write about in losing earth yes there are good guys in the story and there are bad guys in the story but uh that that's you know that only scratches the surface of the complexity of this and the moral the moral complexity of all of this uh in in the overstory um you know the readers are in the position of rooting for all these characters against some obvious villains and there's there's not any sort of uncertainty about which which way to go forward i think what, what's interesting to most interesting to me about you know climate change is that some of the most complex answers don't have you know there are easy answers of basic things that we we know we need to do but there are also you know things that we haven't even begun to discuss politically uh... in this country because one side has insisted that you know the science isn't real i mean to take one example you know you think about the coal miners as sort of a you know, prominent political example in this country where you know if all the coal mines are to close down uh... whether by government you know, fiat or because of the market, what should be done with those workers? You know, should they be left to fend for themselves? Or should we, you know, develop some kind of social welfare for them? And you could imagine a kind of rigorous political debate in this country over over that question. But we haven't even begun to have that debate uh, politically because the right insists there's no issue and that coal, you know, will live on forever. There's a million examples of of issues like that you know what to do about adaptation how much money to spend on speculative technology geo geoengineering um, you know what it, what to do about people who won't leave the coasts, um, on and on and on and there aren't always clear answers and and similarly there aren't clear answers about you know what should we how should we think about having children how should we think about and you know um, the future thinking planning for the future uh, all the rest and that is where I think the literature has has failed us. It, it, we haven't, um, you know. And I feel like until we have more serious works of literature that that get us to ask some of those questions, um, it's hard to imagine a, a robust, um, you know, pu- public conversation about the, that can be taken seriously um, that will really advance uh, policy in a meaningful way.
0: Well, so Tarantino's got a new film out, and he tends to. Have you know good guys and bad guys, and like I said, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to find some bad guys, but your piece really is nuanced, and so even a character like John Sununu, who who seems like a bad guy, we can't we can't blame it all on him.
1: Well, Sununu, yeah, Sununu is the, the chief of staff under Bush is the closest thing to a straight you know black hat villain in the narrative because he effectively you know single handedly um was able to put the kibosh on on this this uh treaty uh, draft that was being negotiated at the end of the decade um but of course he represents a larger you know impulse uh in our politics certainly if not in our you know in humanity which is to say essentially um, if there's any uncertainty let's not engage this you know let's worry about uh the short term over the long term the long term's out of our control um, you know all the basic sort of arguments that you, you end up hearing, whether you know directly or in coded ways from from the right in this country, uh, and ultimately, you know what we're up against with climate change, and this is true even today, is that you know the the amount of people who need to demand that uh, transformation of our economy, of our energy production. Um, the number of people that need to, to to fight for that politically, in terms of you know voting um, for politicians who will take that on, is greater than the number of people who will realistically be threatened in the short term by climate disaster. Uh, so that's why I always question this, you know, this you, every summer when there are the, these horrific wildfires, which are worse every summer. Um, there's always this kinds of news coverage that says, you know, well, now don't you take climate change seriously? You know, people, now that your houses are burning down, you know, now that there's these hurricanes and places, or flooding in places that didn't used to be flooding, now don't you take it seriously? And yes, people in those areas might take it more seriously, but um, when we're talking about the American public and, you know, the people who need to vote, especially in the middle of the country, in Senate races and presidential races, um, look, they might not feel the worst of it uh in the next 10 or 20 or so years you know of course there'll be problems with agriculture of course people will have warmer summers and all the rest um but if if we're waiting for people to feel that their lives are in danger you know to feel viscerally that there's an emergency in their backyard for them to vote well i don't think that will happen soon enough to advance the kind of transformational policy that we do need in the short term and that's why i think there's um, an opening for the kind of argument that you're hearing now, from this this new activism, uh, for a, a different kind of argument, for a moral argument that doesn't necessarily appeal to self-interest, but appeals instead to a sense of of, of what's right and what's decent, uh, and of protecting our you know our, our commitments to these, these very fundamental values of you know fraternity of of helping those who are worse off than us um, of 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 making allowances for the future, um, of being stewards of of our you know of, of our natural environment and also our economy and all the rest. And I think um, that's where you're seeing a, a political shift that's beginning to happen. And I think you know in previous eras when we've had major movement on on social issues, you've always seen um, this kind of argument be raised. you know that, that this is it's not necessarily about what's best for you individuals what's what's best um, for our way of life what we what we what we think is the right you know it, it's about doing the right thing and I think more and more people are beginning to understand that we need to do the, that in order for for our democracy to survive we need to do the right thing on this question that everything is bound up in it
0: yeah I so it's interesting because the one of the shifts that I I feel happened was for a long time This was a personal issue and that you as an individual, if you changed your behavior, perhaps we could beat this thing, you know, but Mm -hmm. it feels like there's an awareness that it's so much bigger than like an individual person's choices. And there has to be some like the forces are so so giant that there needs to be, you know, like a societal uh, shift in how we behave
1: yeah, and I think I mean I think they're connected. I was struck when when Losing Earth was published um, in France a couple months ago. I, I went there for my publisher brought me there for a week, and I was struck by how much of the um, the public debate had to was focused on this question of personal sacrifice, um, which is so foreign to an American ear. You know, nobody here talks about politically. We'll talk about personal sacrifice even on the left. No one will say, "Well, you're going to have to drive less," because, you know, I think everyone's (laughs) internalized the lessons of the Carter presidency still. That if you talk about sacrifice, um, you know, you're politically you're dead meat here. But I also think it's it's not, as you suggest, not entirely realistic realistic to say, "Well, if everybody just sort of, you know, turns out their lights of their house when they go to sleep, you know, more rigorously, that we'll be okay." What we need is a really a top down uh, solution as well, but I, I think that you know they're connected. I think that that until we develop an ethics of of energy use, essentially, or of carbon use, um, I don't think people will understand the urgency um, of what's what's ahead of us, what what needs to be changed. So, I think practically, yes, if everybody you know took the bus instead of driving, yes, it would be better. But I don't think it would. Solve the problem uh, to the degree that we need it, you know, that we need. Um, but I do think that once we internalize a certain ethos of of, uh, of of how we how we use energy and where that energy comes from and and what's the res- what's a responsible use of that energy, um, you know, in the same way that we don't just throw our trash out of our windows onto the sidewalk, the um, same way we recycle at home, you know, until that becomes more ingrained. Um, then it's, it is hard to see um, people then demanding um, much more consequential change from their from their elected officials.
0: So, in in your novel Odds Against Tomorrow, your character Mitchell Zucker is, you know, kind of the the canary in the coal mine for all the ills of the world, uh, and he he goes to the New York Library and researches, you know, what bad things could happen. And he goes down a number of interesting uh, rabbit holes, but is that partially based on you, with that same kind of mindset about you know the you know what what's possible in this big crazy world of ours?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think there's part of certainly I'm, I mean that yeah that's a novel I was tomorrow, that I you know was. I, I thought of it as a novel as I was writing it as a novel about, you know, our anxiety about the future and certainly climate change is part of that. Um but um and and yes, I think I have a tendency to, to think about worst case scenarios and dwell on them, not to the level of of Mitchell, but um yeah yeah, I think it is an exaggeration of a of a natural tendency I have. But I think on the other hand we're we're all now in this society to some extent you know, worst worst case scenarios. I mean, we all have every worst case scenario at our fingertips with the internet. Um, it's very easy to 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 make oneself go crazy about just about anything, uh, any kind of threat. And that really was the was what I wanted to write about was the the ease with which we can become overwhelmed by all these known dangers out there. Even though you know, statistically, uh, in terms of you know longevity and nutrition and all the rest, we you know human beings have in, at least in the Western world have never been had it you know had it better. Um, and yet, I think we we are as anxious as as we've ever been. I mean, maybe not you know during the plague years or something, but but still, I think we're, we're our, our anxiety far outpaces our condition. And and what I wanted to write about uh, was, was, you know, what is, what, what, why does that anxiety have such a hold on us? Why is it so easy to become overwhelmed? And what, you know, knowing about all of the worst-case scenarios that, that, that seem to be facing us, you know, how is this, how is this touching our personal daily lives? So in a way, I, I felt with losing Earth that it was a kind of nonfiction companion to Odds Against Tomorrow, even though this, the stories are, are, you know, wildly different um they they both uh were efforts to try to answer or at least pose some of these questions about you know what is the effect of these great public crises uh on our personal lives um and i think uh you know mitchell has it, finds his own resolutions for that and you know james hansen and Ray palmer has find their own answers and i think i'm still searching for my own answers to some of those questions as well
0: well, can you speak a little bit about Rafe Pomerantz and James Hansen, the heroes of Losing Earth? Are they still alive? And, you know, who are these guys?
1: Yeah, well, James Hansen, I knew from the beginning would have to be a major figure in in the story. And I was very grateful that he um, agreed to, to, he submitted himself to the, you know, to, I guess, tens of hours of interviews that I, I, I you know, inflicted on him. But he's, he's the most prominent climate scientist I think in the world uh, safe to say and probably has been since his testimony in 1988 although you know he began speaking on this subject before Congress in uh, 1980 uh, and was one of the first politicians to speak publicly about about the issue um, you know and and, and threaten himself you know sorry to, to, to bring major threats uh onto him professionally and and even personally uh by doing so and um, so he continues to you know to to be to work on this issue he's he's i think embittered somewhat he's frustrated by the lack of success uh in moving the issue forward despite his his heroic efforts um, but he's he's now Part of this major lawsuit called "Our Children's Trust," that is, uh, 21 um, kids, at least uh, when they filed the suit, were all under 21 years of age, and um, Hansen's own granddaughter is one of the plaintiffs, and it's it's a suit against the the U.S. government uh, for failing, uh, not only failing to take action despite knowing um, everything there is to know about climate change as early as the 1950s, um, but making the problem you know, considerably worse. Uh, so he's very much working to this day. Rafe Pomerantz also is, is continues, you know, he, he was essentially the only global warming activist, climate change activist during the eighties, uh, and single-handedly helped, uh, single-handedly developed the, um, this policy approach to the issue, tried to rally, you know, rallied a tremendous amount of support, um, was totally obscure outside of, Sort of DC policy circles, environmental circles. Um, so I hadn't heard his name before I started researching the the book, but immediately his name, you know, kept coming up in conversations, and I soon realized that, you know, the only reason he wasn't known was because he had tried very hard uh, to to stay behind the scenes, and he felt that he was could be most effective um, in that in that kind of role, and 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 you know. He was one of the people who realized that well, James Hansen would be a, a great spokesperson for this this issue because he was a serious scientist um, who was well respected, um, and and Pomerantz, um, yeah, drove the issue politically for the entire decade. And you know, I think he's been discouraged over the years, but he's he has said um, in recent months that he's he's been revitalized in his his activism by this new this new wave of youth of youth activism. Um, and so he continues to work with a few different groups, and um, yeah, he's out there, and he's he's super charismatic, um, wonderful guy. Uh, and I I wish um, yeah I, I hope that he becomes increasingly prominent now and in, in, in the years ahead because he's one of the great communicators of the issue.
0: Well, you said you yourself are still coming to terms with all this. What what are you working on? You know, what are you pointed at, and is it going to be a little bit of both, nonfiction and fiction, or you know?
1: Yeah, you- I mean, I think I think that there's. I feel you know. I think about those writers writing, um, you know, fiction or, or nonfiction. Uh, you know, in, in other great moments of of great public um, crisis, like World War, you know, after after World War II or after the bomb, or during the Civil Rights era. Um, You know, I think writers of that time didn't necessarily need to write exclusively about you know those crises, but you can't help but feel that the shadow of of those crises in the work. And in the same way, I feel that even if I'm you know, what I write is not another you know climate change history. I can't imagine doing doing that again. But you know, or or explicitly about climate change, I still think that this sense of uh, foreboding of, of of sense of this unsettling sense um of of you know being part of a society that's that's hastening its own demise i think you can't you know that that is now part of the fabric that of our lives these days and and i think it it would be dishonest to write a book that was not informed by that in some way even if it's entirely Im- implicit um so i do feel that this will be part of whatever i do going forward. Um, my next book will be a collection of essays on environmental themes that is, is a little bit more forward-facing, and it's not exclusively about climate change, but really about um, our relationship with what we like to call um, some level of self-deception, the natural world. Um, so that's that's immediate, and then a novel that you know, as I said, it's probably not explicitly about climate change, but I think will reflect in some ways the moment that we, we live in.
0: Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It was good talking to you.
0: You bet. You've been listening to Nathaniel Rich on 42 Minutes, a production of Syncbook Radio and thesyncbook.com. For more information about his work, check out his website. Daniel rich.com to which we'll link for more information about the sync book our guests to check out shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at the If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the sync book radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at the sync Thanks so much. And your government is fucking this up.
1: Hello.